This school year, we are reading and following Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. Um, This is a little different of a sermon series in that we are not going through every particular passage in the Gospel of Luke. We are leapfrogging over a few passages. The youth are alongside us in this study, and we are trying to time it so that we are there in Luke chapter 22 and 23 and 24 at Easter here in April of this year. So this is an opportunity to do discipleship with our youth on Wednesday nights as they're following along. And so it's just impossible to do every passage. And this particular week, I was actually scheduled, I have not even confessed this to Christian yet, I was scheduled to preach in Luke chapter 17, and I just couldn't even get there. I couldn't get past Luke 15. I've been so saturated in story this week that I couldn't get past his picture stories of Luke 15. So why are we in the Gospel of Luke this year? In chapter 1, verse 4, the beloved physician is writing to the most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So disciples of Jesus have certainty of Jesus. And Luke wanted Theophilus to have certainty of who he is and what he has done. Disciples also shine the light when their hearts burn in knowing him. So if chapter 1 tells us we need to have certainty of Jesus, chapter 24 in Jesus' resurrection, this is what he sells to two disciples along the road to Emmaus. They realized that when it was Jesus, they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the road while he opened up the scriptures? There in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is walking with unsuspecting disciples who do not recognize him, and he gives them the Bible study of all Bible studies, telling them of how the Christ was prophesied through all of the scriptures. So to be disciples of Jesus, we need both certainty and hearts aflame for him. Now behind me is a cross um, fashioned by Danny Minix out of wood from our renovation. We threw an LED light from the top and threw it down, and what do you see there? Thank you. When I saw it, I always saw it. I was like, oh, we got like a cape on our cross. And then finally, this last week, two people came to me at different times who were not, I don't think, could talk to each other, and they see an open Bible on that shadow. So let's see an open Bible instead of a cape until we change the lighting. <laughs> oh. But he is, this is the story, this is the fairy tale, which actually does. There is a happy ever after. This is the legend, this is the myth. It actually is true. It's the story we've never written, but this is amazing. So there in that open Bible is the revelation of the Christ, the Son of God. Are we a disciple of Christ? Are we certain of Him? Do our hearts burn at Him? So Luke chapter 15, turn with me. This is one of the best known chapters of the Bible. It does good to our human soul to come to it. Pastor Christian and I are are talking about doing a parable series at some point, so I'm not trying to steal from that, but I just could not get past these stories this week. Real quick, look at verse, the, the last verse of chapter 14. Our Lord says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as we go to chapter 15, who is hearing? Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the end of chapter 14 says, He who has ears, let him hear. The beginning of chapter 15, who's actually hearing and coming to Jesus? Tax collectors and sinners. We've talked a lot about meals through the Gospel of Luke. Who has Jesus eaten with? He's eaten with sinners and tax collectors, even a tax collector named Levi in chapter 5. But he's also eaten with Pharisees in chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 14. Jesus does not discriminate with his company. Jesus can move in any social circle. Jesus can mingle with the social outcast, but also the social elites. Jesus can converse with both the irreligious and the religious. He can relate to both the simple and the sophisticated. And as we see the example of Jesus, as we know and follow Jesus through this gospel, that should challenge us. Are there only circles that we're willing to be in? Are there only types of people we're willing to relate to? The example of our Lord is that he can both be with the elites and the outcasts, the simple and the sophisticated, the irreligious and the religious. But who is actually hearing and having ears to hear? It is the irreligious, the social outcast, the unsophisticated. And so Jesus teaches here again three stories Lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. I'm very story-saturated right now. I just completed a marathon through the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings. 11 and a half hours or 11.4 hours over a 24-hour period. My entire journey this last weekend has been going to try to get rid of something. But now we come to three stories where we're trying to get something back. Trying to pace myself. Not too many Lord of the Ring references. It's just kind of oozing right now. Let's go to this first story, the story of lost sheep. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing just pause there a shepherd is here counting his sheep before he goes to bed he has a hundred sheep 98 99 where's the other one there's many things we count to make sure that we have all of it there in our home or in our portfolio you're you're keeping tabs on what you have this shepherd is counting his sheep and he has one short now, in a typical search, please understand this. If you're missing a sheep, you grab a buddy, a hired hand, another shepherd to watch over the sheep that you already have, and then you go searching for the lost one. This is unnerving for us. How would a shepherd leave the 99 of the open country? These are not untended sheep. This is a story. Jesus is not, this is not a real event. He's not filling in all the details. But let us not think that he's just leaving 99 just unprotected for wolves or other um, thieves. He would go and either find the animal, find the remains, or after an extensive search, find nothing. You're either going to go find it, you're going to find the remains of it, 
Or if you've done all that you can with the time that you have, not find. The emphasis on this story is on the lost one. The shepherd gives his attention to the lost sheep. And what is the emotion felt by the shepherd when he finds it? Rejoicing. It's not like, oh, this is good. There's rejoicing in finding this lost sheep. Verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so he throws a party, family and friends, neighbors. Excitement over finding that which was lost. And so the picture of this parable, it's a story. This isn't a a true story, it's a story that teaches. And Jesus is this good shepherd. And we are just the dumb sheep, prone to wander. Apart from Jesus, we are lost. We need to be found by Jesus. So many of us will say, I found Jesus at such and such a time in my life. And that's not wrong to say, but Jesus was not lost. Jesus wasn't hiding. We say, I found Jesus, but actually maybe a more accurate way to say it is, Jesus found me. And even though I was wandering through the valley of the shadow of death, he's the good shepherd who found me. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. And Jesus leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. It's the rod and staff of this good shepherd that comfort me. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so we found a sheep that is found, but it now pictures something different. How is the, what is the evidence of being found according to this verse? Repentance. According to this verse, being found by Jesus is evidenced with repentance. And so let's keep those two together, being found by Jesus and repenting. When I say that word, I know that there's already connotations kind of stirring up in your heart. When I say repentance, when I say repent, what are you thinking? Ugh. Like, calm down, Derek. Don't be, don't be negative. Like, sometimes we have a negative reaction to this word, repentance. You picture somebody just slamming this, or like with a sandwich board on the corner, and you, we've made it a negative word, and it's a beautiful, grace-filled, should-be-embraced word. It should be a part of our life here as following, knowing, Christian, and knowing and following Jesus. It is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Romans 2.4 For a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I mean, when we have a godly grief, we repent of our sin. But if we just have a remorse, even as Pastor Christian spoke about a couple weeks ago, that's not a turning to the Lord. So repentance means a change of mind or an entire shift of our soul. Looking this direction, but now shifting, having a change. 
It's not just in our head, it's in our soul. So I no longer love sin, I now hate it. I no longer just dismiss God, I delight in God. This is repentance. It's turning away from pride toward humility towards others. I'm no longer trying to save face before others. I'm actually seeking forgiveness before others. I don't have to be right. I just want to make sure I make things right. I'm not going to love the world, but I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm going to believe upon Christ. It's this shift. Don't just think of it as some negative word just you get browbeat with. This is a grace that leads us to turn to life in God. And you do it more than once. Actually, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis, he wanted to have a, let's have a discussion about what the Christian life is according to the Scriptures. His first one said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of Repentance. He just want to have a discussion. He wasn't really wanting to reform an entire church or change the trajectory of church history. Are you repentant of your sin or are you, just, or are you good? Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no need to repent. And yet, for sinners and their salvation, he died the death we deserve, which is forsakenness by God. So the The judgment we deserve, Jesus took in our place, and this is how the good shepherd loves us. He lays his life down for us. And do we believe this good news? So what is the result of a sinner's repentance according to this story of Jesus? Joy. Joy in heaven. Joy in the kingdom of God. We're trying so hard to be joyful Christians and we're not repenting. Where Jesus tells us, if you want want joy in the kingdom of God, repent. Don't make it a negative thing. Hate your sin and and love God. Don't dismiss God. Delight in Him. It's this shift of mind of how we see life. But I would ask you, why do we resist repentance? Stacey and I had the conversation last night. I really love that character. He quickly repented. Legolas. Ah, oh, forgive me, Aragorn, because I forgive me for my despair. We need to repent of our despair. Not only repent of sins that we do, we need to repent of sins we're not doing. Or sins, good things we're not doing. But why do we resist repentance? It's because I want to protect my image. I don't want you to think that I'm weak or don't have it all together. I want to control the narrative. I want to control the situation. I want you to think I've got it all together. And so I will ignore my sin. I'll dismiss my sin. I'll minimize my sin. I'll justify my sin. But where is joy? Where is rejoicing? It's in the repentance of one. Now we can all herd up together and be the 99 who don't need it. But the truth of Scripture is that we all need to be daily repenting, momentarily repenting, 
turning toward the Lord. Repentance from sin brings joy. It's a joy just to confess your sin. Quit hiding. Quit trying to justify it. Just get cast it away. It's on the cross, paid for. Jesus paid it all. Let's confess it and live in freedom and have joy. Let others around us share in that joy. Let angels throw parties in this joy. Verse 8, the second story. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? Have you ever felt for, search for something that was lost? How do you feel when something is lost? You misplace your wallet? It's like panic. Like, where did I set that down? Did I leave it at the store? Who's going to get my credit card? Am I going to have to like do all my, redo all my credit cards and my driver's license? And you, you start to panic in your race. Where are my keys? I, I got to go. I, I'm late somewhere. I need my keys. Where's my smartphone? Oh, where am I? How am I going to, and you're just sitting there, oh, my precious. Where's my, pre <laughs> man, Derek, you're going to get all, no more Lord of the Rings like this week before. A few Sundays ago, somewhere here in this church, somewhere in my home, or somewhere at Kroger, um, the diamond in my wife's ring fell out. Um, so 20, 23 years of marriage, and now we're just kind of walking off the band. We've searched. No rejoicing. But you know what? If I find that thing, I'm going to throw a party. My family, friends, neighbors, let's throw a party. Look at what was lost and is now found. This story, a woman loses one of her ten silver coins. If you lost one-tenth of your wealth, how would you feel? She diligently sweeps, scours, searches her home. And when she finds it, do you hear the, the echoed refrains again? Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together for her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. Just with finding a lost sheep, what is the response of finding the lost coin? Just rejoicing in joy. But what is the evidence of it? There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The evidence of being found is repentance. What is the result of repentance? Joy. This is not a story about coins. And even though we want to find coins and diamonds and smartphones, this is about people. Coins are circulated. They'll sometimes get damaged or smudged. They'll be taken out of circulation. We will never be taken out of circulation. We have a soul with an eternal destiny. God created us, but now we will live forever. It's just the question, where and with whom? Apart from Jesus, we are lost. And we need to be found by Jesus. This is the message of salvation. But found by Jesus, we must go to the lost with the good news of Jesus. And it's even in this story... 
you can see another aspect of this, of the Christian life, evangelism. We will read all these stories and be confronted with our lostness apart from Christ. But we will also read these parables and be confronted with other aspects of the Christian life. And in this one, not coins, but people. There are millions of people in this world who are lost without Christ. Maybe the number is too big and it's just too hard and we don't even think about that. But in 2009, it was was a weird... 2009, I was at Scott Stadium at UVA. States and I had splurged and we bought tickets to U2. The Muse was opened up for them, a band I didn't really know that well. But here I am. It almost felt like a worship event. I mean, the way that everyone's wearing the garb and gear, everybody's singing. They're, just, they're ready for a worship experience. And here I am in this stadium. And like the edge walks out, the guitar, and everybody's like hooping and hollering. And the thought struck me. I remember it striking me. How many of these people here have saving and eternal faith in Christ? It's not often you get to be in a large crowd. But whenever you're in a large crowd, just think, how many people here actually know and love Jesus and are eternally secure in him? It's so, we will join our voices in saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have. Actually, I have. I'm waiting for the fulfillment of it, the consummation of it, but I have found what I'm looking for. And so saved by Jesus, we can be a city of blinding lights. Ah, another you too reference. All right. The world may be too big to think about. In the Roanoke Valley, Roanoke City, and the surrounding counties, there's well over 100,000 people who are lost, according to 2010 statistics. These are people in our everyday circles. These are people in our families. These are people in our workplace. These are in our neighborhoods, our schools who apart from Jesus are lost. And the story here that Jesus teaches is that which is lost is diligently searched for. And if Jesus has diligently searched for us and found us, and his means here, his ordains, and he's done it through other people, someone presented the message of Jesus to you. Someone opened up their home to you and shared their life with you. Jesus is not here physically, bodily with us, but the power of his spirit working through his people reached you and found you. And if you've been found by Jesus, guess what? That's what you get to now do and diligently search the lost. Are we so diligently searching to share this good news? But Derek, I, I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of pressures here. I mean, we're just supposed to not... Get in other people's space, privatize the faith, just kind of let people be. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. One person says this, if that is true, that we're supposed to be respecters of space, then Jesus Christ was the chief violator of human rights because he made that kind of activity his central business of life and he commanded his people to do the same. R.C. Sproul. You know, one of the joys of our Sunday evening prayer meeting that's kind of gotten started up is we're getting here and people are praying for lost people by name. We want to pray for the world. We want to pray for God's movement to brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. But it circles down and there's been a lot of people praying by name 
for people in their life circles. And are we going to get tired of just praying this? No, because diligently, we're praying and diligently praying for opportunities to share. I invite you back tonight at 5.30 to 6.30. The prayer meeting will be a little different because we'll gather here in the sanctuary and then we'll disperse to different areas depending on who's here. We'll cluster up and we're going to pray through this entire renovated building. Jesus is Lord and he sends us out to make more disciples of him. It is treasonous to neglect or even reject evangelism as the command of Jesus. It is unloving to not tell others of the new life and eternal joy that is offered in Christ Jesus our Lord. Evangelism is not optional. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist, Paul tells Timothy. Apart from Jesus, we must be found. Found by Jesus, we can now go to the lost. Come with me to this last story, a longer one. Your Bible probably says the parable of the prodigal son. This is the story of two lost sons. Verse 11, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came in he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes 
home and who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. It's a familiar parable. We've heard it maybe many times in our lifetime, if you're a follower of Christ. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. If it's two lost sons, they are both lost. Both sons are lost and both sons are loved. The father loves them both. The younger is lost in worldliness. Like, I don't have time for you to, to die. Can I just go and get my inheritance now? I'm ready to start living now, Dad. And he takes it and he goes and squanders it in reckless living. The older is diligent, dutiful, stays home, takes care of the, the, the fields, the property, the family business, does the right thing, but he's lost in his self-righteousness. There's joy at the end of the story because the younger one comes home and repents. And there's celebration. Joy comes through repentance. There's still a question at the end of the story. It's not a real story, but it's a question hanging out there as these grumbling Pharisees are hearing this. Will the older son repent and come into the party? Or is he going to cross his arms and stay outside the house? A few years ago, um, some of us in Old City Light read a book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. It cracked me up when one of my dear sisters actually texted me and said, I think I just got saved on page like 67. And I'm like, you've known Jesus for... But it's just the, the depth of understanding the gospel hit her in a new way. Here's some of the words from that book. Jesus does not divide the world into moral good guys and immoral bad guys. He shows us that the, everyone is dedicated to the project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. And even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and to his feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not religion nor irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's not conservatism or liberalism. It's not just something halfway in between the two and on a spectrum. It's something altogether different. Some of you have had the experience that, like, I don't know if I can come back to church or not because I really don't really want to. I'm, life is fun. It's not fulfilling, but I've had fun doing it. But if I repent and come to church, now I've got to live this stuffy life and I've got to put on this religious front. This is not the gospel. It's not irreligion to religion. Because that very same gospel is being preached to the religious saying, repent of self-righteousness and come into the love of the Father. So the irreligious need to repent of worldliness and the religious need to repent of self-righteousness. It's not morality that it's not morality that saves us. It's the grace of God. It's not immorality that fulfills us. It's the grace of God that does. And so both the irreligious and the religious are loved by God. Both the irreligious and the religious 
need to be saved by Jesus. And there's where there's opportunities to repent for all of us. As you read this, if you've heard this parable and you hear it again today, does the question come to you like, well, am I more like the older son or the younger son? And the truth is, it's probably, there may be one that you more identify with, but the truth is there's an older son in all of us and a younger son in all of us. We, we want to taste that world. We want to, is it going to, we want to just show that we're good and right? In a study of these parable, this parable a couple years ago, I came across a book and I gave it an un, unlikely read. The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen, who was a Catholic writer and priest. I'm like, oh no. Before you send the emails to me tomorrow, before I like talk about this Catholic priest and writer, I disagree. I disagree with biblical and systematic theology. I'm just very challenged by his pastoral care, by his pastoral heart. We're going to approach and read the scriptures differently, understand view of salvation differently. But in my study of trying to read more widely as I was on this subject, I got really confronted with his, more of his testimony. For some years, he had looked at this painting by Rembrandt, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he had seen a replication or reproduction of it in France. He was able to see the original later on in, in Russia. And he would just sit and stare at it. And the younger son is there kneeling before the father, and you see the older son there in the red to the right. And there's others who are just looking on. And now one would continue to just be distressed in his soul. Am I more like the younger son or am I more like the older son? Which would you say for yourself? And then finally a friend offered him a different type of exhortation. Whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you're being called to become the father. You've been looking for friends all your life. You've been craving for affection as long as you've been, you've known you, as I've known you. You've been interested in the thousands of things. You've been begging for attention, appreciation, affirmation left and right. The time has come for you to claim your true vocation to be a father who can welcome children home without asking any questions and without wanting anything from them in return. And for my broad study that I was doing there, I'm like, yes. That's not only hitting me, but it's now, it needs to hit our church. We need more fathers and mothers who can wel welcome the repentant home. For two years of my life, I just circled on this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became to you a father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is a single guy. He said, I wish more of you were unmarried like me. You can do a whole lot for the kingdom of God when you don't have to like, manage a home and a marriage. It's like I was single. and like, yeah, it's not I, but the, not the Lord, but I. And this is what Paul's saying. A single guy who was a spiritual father to the churches and to his disciples. What we need less of this day are celebrity pastors, best-selling authors, conference speakers, and power brokers in the church. 
just need more ordinary, unassuming spiritual fathers and mothers. This was my passage of study for two years in 2016, or 2015 to 2017. Jesus commands us, go and make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28. The book of Acts, we're making disciples, we're seeing disciples, the word disciples being used. But in Acts chapter 21, verse 16, the word disciple falls out of the New Testament. So if Jesus says, go make disciples, and that, entire, that word just falls out of all of Paul's letters, all of Peter's letters, all of John's letters, are we failing to make disciples? And I would say no. Discipleship in New Testament terms is always through the language of family. I'm not going to preach this major project today, but let me give you one example in 1 Thessalonians 2. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I just give that as an example because Paul in that example both has feminine language of motherhood and masculine language of fatherhood. And he attributes it to himself and how he cared for the church. What is most striking in this parable of Jesus is the lavish love of the Father. And this is how we are saved. The lavish love of God the Father to send his beloved Son to die for us, to be raised before us, to save us. And we're asking the question, am I more like the younger son or the older son? And that's a very good question because through that, we need to repent to joy. But then do see the Father in this story. We have been so loved by God the Father. And now we need to take the mantle of fatherhood, motherhood, spiritual parenting to care for others. Allow me to quote now one more time. It has been a slow and arduous struggle, and sometimes I still feel the desire to remain the son and never to grow old. But I've also tasted the immense joy of children coming home and laying hands on them in a pot gesture of forgiveness and blessing. I have come to know in a small way what it means to be a father who asks no questions, wanting only to welcome his children home. So let me just share a little bit of my Gen X angst with you here. I mean, we have the greatest generation who fought wars to push back evil in this world. We have a boomer generation that built and built and built. And then comes my generation that inherited all this affluence. We don't know what we're doing. And my generation remembers life before the internet, before cell phones. But now I'm trying to like live into this, trying to stay cool and hip and up to date with this. I feel like totally between generations here in this world that has changed so fast. And I have felt this tension in my life and in my faith. A desire just to remain the child and in the home of others. Man, do you remember just the innocence, the freedom of childhood? I remember just being able to get on my bike and just go for the whole day. Come back for dinner. Just BMXing all over the hills, the neighborhood that was still being built. Just going to Little League practice. Just such freedoms and being in the home of another. But then this adulthood, which we're so wanting and just waiting to get to, all of a sudden has complexities and responsibilities. 
And the millennial generation behind me is trying to figure it out as they figure out how to adult in their terms. The, the honest truth is I sometimes wonder if I have what it takes. I have not marched into each successive decade of my life in this fearless arrival. Ah, oh, my 20s, and I'm just going to march into my 30s, and here I am. In my 40s, here I am. It has been with fear and trembling. The older I get. And so when I go back to the scriptures, I'm always like, oh, fear not, fear not, fear not. And they jump off the page. So for you who are in your teens and 20s, maybe even your early 30s, don't think that you're just going to arrive and you've arrived and plateaued out and you've got it all together. There's a lot of fear and trembling as you continue on in life. Back to now and No father or mother ever became a father or mother without having been a son or daughter. And every son or daughter has to consciously choose to step beyond the childhood and become father and mother for others. It is a hard and lonely step to take, especially in a person of history in which parenthood is so hard to live well. But it is a step that is essential for the fulfillment of the spiritual journey. Listen to this. Isn't there a subtle pressure in both the church and society to remain a dependent child? Hasn't the church in the past stressed dependence in a fashion that made it hard to claim spiritual fatherhood? And hasn't our consumer society encouraged us both to indulge in childish self-gratification? Who has truly challenged us to liberate ourselves from immature dependencies and to accept the burden of responsible adults? I would say in the age that we're in now of collectivism, we don't need you to grow up. We'll take care of you. Just, just, the state, the government, we'll take care. We can all just remain dependent. But the call of Scripture, the, the journey they're on is towards independence and responsibility and care, even of others. And so in the great love chapter, Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And it's time for more of us to accept the burden of responsible adults as spiritual parents in the church. Are you lost in childish chasing of the world? If you look at that painting, if you hear this parable and you think, I am the youngest son and I've just squandered so much of my life on reckless living. There's a home to come back to. You're never beyond the grace of God. You may think you just had to come and grovel back, but the love of the Father is going to meet you on the way back. He's going to run and chase after you and he's going to rejoice over you, celebrate over you. So if you feel like you've made all these choices and you feel like I'm too immoral, I'm too irreligious to be in the church, please do not repent and put on a, a religiosity and think that this is what it needs to take. Repent of that and come to life in Christ, belief in him. Or maybe are you lost in petulant pride and your self-righteousness? Look at me, Father, I've, I've been here. I've been doing it. Golly, you gave him already what, you gave him his part. But now what's taking this party is you're spending my part to celebrate with him. And we're like parsing out what's fair, not fair. Repent and come inside. 
Repent and come inside the house and start the party. Put a smile on your face and get inside and be joyful that sinners are coming to repentance, that the lost are found. Or do you know the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus? Have you known and followed Him for years? And it's time to grow up. It's time to take responsibility. It's time to care for others. We need more spiritual fathers and mothers. And I know some of the stories out here. I know some of you who are waiting at the door, praying for adult children who've gone and squandered in reckless living. And you're not even asking the question, am I the younger or the older brother? I know you because I've heard your stories. You're just waiting. You're waiting for, you're praying for that younger one to come back. That, that reckless living child to come back and come to faith in Christ. And so you're experiencing the heart of the Father like many of us need to learn from. So in these parables, we see different aspects of seeking and finding. All aspects are seen in all three parables, but let me just show you. In the lost sheep, we're reminded that we are dumb sheep and we need to be found. Apart from Jesus, we are lost. We need to be found. There is joy in repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Believe upon him today, please, if you've not. And if you've been found by Jesus, it was through others that he met you. It's now your turn to go and seek the lost and share this good news. This is where joy is in seeing others come to faith in Christ. Not by doing church right or organizing the program. Joy is coming by seeing new life in Christ. And now loved by Jesus, we can extend this gracious love to others. And this is the journey of discipleship. Caring for others and welcoming home repentant sinners, wayward sons and daughters. Repentance from sin brings joy. Don't hide. Don't run. Don't cross your arms. Let's repent. Let's pray.